Now, we have a, a theme for this year which is called, I think it says up there, Exploring My Strange Bible. Now, some people might be upset with the idea that we could consider the Bible strange, but um, you may find yourselves agreeing with me the further we go this morning. Um, and part of my job is we've got a, a number of uh, topics within this theme this year, and I, I certainly won't be preaching all of them. Uh, and so I, I feel that my job here is to lay a bit of the groundwork for the people to come after me. Uh, we've, I've just finished a series called Heaven and Hell, where we explained uh, what the biblical view of uh, heaven and hell was, which is quite different to our, often our traditional view of it. And uh, we discovered uh, to our relief that hell is actually a place that people want to go to, um, although those people aren't particularly sensible. Um, so this morning, I actually want to talk about the origins of the Bible. Now this is a bit of a, a thorny topic as well, because uh, depending on your, your Christian background, uh, there are various uh, ideas of, of what role the Bible plays in our faith and, and what it actually uh, is in terms of God's word or God's inspired word or uh, even to the extent that it's myths and legends uh, that have been copied down throughout the ages and embellished. Um, and so I want to explore some of the things the Bible tells us about the Bible and also talk about some of the historical knowledge that we have about the Bible. Uh, hopefully, my intention is to actually strengthen our faith, not to weaken it. Uh, but some people who believe that the Bible came down from heaven, uh, prepackaged in a book form in Kurong, um, may well be in for a shock when they discover that that's not exactly uh, how it happened. Uh, or, or the fact that... Um, it was actually written by the people whose names appear in the Bible, because that probably didn't happen either. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I want to look at how we came to have the Bible we use today and some of the important questions and issues around it, like who wrote the Bible? Uh, when was it written? Do we have any of the original manuscripts? And what about differences in some of the material? Some of you have probably heard ideas that perhaps there are versions of the Bible out there that aren't the same as the one we use. And so we need to, first of all, realise that the Bible has two components. The Bible has a divine component. There is no doubt in my mind that the people who wrote the Bible were inspired by God to do so, and that the message God wanted to convey through the Bible is a, a message which is still there and is untainted by what we do. There's also a human aspect to the Bible because whether you like it or not, every single word in the Bible was written by a human being. Is that okay? And who, who knows a perfect human being in here? No. So therefore, the fact that it was written by human beings means that we have to at least entertain the idea that there might be errors in it or variations or differences. And depending on your Christian tradition, uh, that may mess with your understanding, or it may not. And so there are actual real issues involved here. I had a, had a great conversation with Richard Coombe during the week um, regarding the, the idea of what people can do when they have an axe to grind 
in talking about Bible history and, and what the Bible means. And uh, there's a lot of misrepresentation of what the Bible is. There's a lot of fear-mongering and, and people trying to instill doubt about its authenticity to actually undermine people's faith and to further their own agendas. And so you know, we've got to be careful that we, we don't fall into any of those categories. And we've also got to look at the fact that there are extremes of faith within Christian circles. On one extreme, and I stress that these are extremes, so this isn't necessarily the norm, we have fundamentalist Christians who believe that everything in the Bible can be taken at face value. In other words, if you read a line in the Bible and it says, cut off your nut, gouge out your eyes because you shouldn't look at women, then they think that's literal and they walk around with the shades that you can't see through to avoid that. Uh, my favourite example of this is, is Psalm 1. Uh, and verse 1, which has to be read from the King James Version, of course. Um, I might talk a bit about that later. Um, and it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now, this particular scripture actually gave rise to a set of very restrictive rules in, in the Christian circles in America in the 1940s, where churches started forbidding their people to go out into the streets in case they walked in the path of someone who was a sinner. And movie theatres were right out because you were pretty sure of actually sitting in the seat of a mocker uh, if you did so. And so people were taking this literally that we had to closet ourselves away. You know, you don't take the counsel of the ungodly, which means basically you don't talk to unsaved people and so they formed all of these rules based on the fact that they thought that you could take everything literally they completely dismissed the human element of the bible authors and refused to acknowledge for instance that psalm 1 is actually poetry and that in poetry you use repetition and often hyperbole who knows what hyperbole means exaggeration in poetry lies and the bible is full of poetry I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Um, and basically, those three lines make a single point about the attitude of followers of Yahweh. It's basically, don't have the attitudes of these people because it won't do you any good. Um, and so, we've got that attitude. Uh, the other extreme is when people dismiss biblical accounts as myths and legends of an uncivilized group of nomads that have been passed down and exaggerated over the millennia. Now, this not only ignores the divine aspect of the Bible and God's plans and his purposes for his chosen people, but it shows gross ignorance about the capabilities of ancient cultures, for a start. They were not anywhere near as um, primitive as some people would like to think. Now, unfortunately, the truth is not just somewhere in the middle. It would be very convenient to say, well, okay, let's take a halfway point. Some of it's true, some of it's not. Let's put it together and just... Even it out. It doesn't actually work like that because it's more complicated. It's tied up in the tension between what God wanted his word to convey to his covenant people and how the biblical human authors actually achieved that through various means. Because some of it's the Bible's narrative, some of it's poetry, some is what we call apocalyptic literature, which relies heavily on images uh, which are quite hard to, to understand. And so there's this tension between did, get, did God get across what he wanted to or did human beings stuff it up entirely? Um, and the answer is yes, God did get across what he wanted to but not necessarily in the words that he would have used. He used the words that we used uh, or we as a person several thousand years ago. 
So I believe it's safe to say that the Bible as a whole conveys what God wanted to say to human beings very clearly. So over the next two weeks, we're actually just going to concentrate on the human history of the Bible. But in the back of everybody's minds, while we're doing this, I want you to have this particular thought, that, the, that God's purpose for every book of the Bible, and I mean every book, even in the Old Testament, is to reveal Jesus to us, his character, his purpose, and what he's up to in the world. Now, if you're reading your Bible and you're not getting that, then you're reading it wrongly. <laughs> Start again. Um, so this week, I'm going to look at the Old Testament, and next week, we're going to look at the New Testament. So are you ready? Are you taking notes? No, probably not. We should pray. Lord, I thank you that your word this morning is going to bless people, perhaps shakes people, shake people's foundations. But I pray that as I preach your word, that people's resolve and trust in the, our Lord Jesus Christ will be affirmed and acknowledged and strengthened. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, who wrote the Old Testament and when? That's an easy one. No idea. We actually have very little idea of who wrote the Old Testament or most of the Old Testament. We do know, however, that it was written between 1300 BC and 200 BC. Um, there are very few references to who the authors of any of the Old Testament books are, but there are a few clues scattered in the Old Testament. For instance, in Deuteronomy 31:24, it says, When Moses had finished writing this entire body of instruction in a book, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, Take this book of instruction and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God so it may remain there as a witness against the people of Israel. Now the problem with that is that this is a book talking about another book that Moses wrote and we don't know where that book is. It's lying next to the Ark of the Covenant. So if you know where that is, we might have a clue. But we know that Moses was obviously involved in writing what we call the Torah. And in English we translate that as to the law. Um, which is actually a bad translation because it's a book. The Torah is actually a book about the law. The Torah isn't the book of the law at all. And so we need, it's a book of instructions, as, as it mentions here. And, uh, and we also know, if we look in Deuteronomy 34, verse 5, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. The Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab, but to this day no one knows the exact place. Now we can tell from that the author is obviously not Moses, because he's dead. <laughs> but who, who, who wrote it? We, we actually do not know uh, who wrote um, most of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, is a great example from Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah 36, 32, and I'll fill you in on the backstory a bit in a minute. It says, so Jeremiah took another scroll and dictated again to his secretary Baruch, he wrote everything that had been on the, the scroll King Jehoiakim had burned in the fire, only this time he added much more. So are we getting a picture here that Jeremiah had written the book of Jeremiah and he'd showed it to this king who had been so upset with it, he'd cut it into little pieces and burned it. So here we have the Holy Scripture that's not only been read out, but it's been destroyed. And so it says here that Jeremiah gets Baruch, who's a scribe, to write it for him. And it says that Baruch added lots of other stuff as well. He sort of, what stuff? Where, where, where's the stuff come from and where's it going and how do we know where it is? So the book of Jeremiah we have is, is version two. Um, and 
it's actually interesting, you sort of think, well, how do we know that people like Baruch existed? Is it just a name? And we don't know about Baruch in particular, but there's, a, there's another uh, verse in Jeremiah that says, um, from the room of Jemariah, son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper courtyard of the entrance of the new gate of the temple, Baruch read to all the people at the Lord's temple the words of Jeremiah from the scroll. Now, this, this guy, Jemariah, we actually know existed because if you look at this next picture, this is actually a fossilized piece of wax with a ring seal that says Je- Jemariah, son of Shaphan, on it. So that we know this guy existed and, and wrote on scrolls and sealed them. We don't actually have his seal on, on the book of Jeremiah, but we, we do know that these biblical authors aren't figments of people's imagination. Okay, moving on. Who wrote the book of Proverbs? Anyone? King Solomon. It says that he wrote it on there. Um, Except when you get to Proverbs 25 verse 1. It says, these are more Proverbs of Solomon, collected by the advisors of King Hezekiah of Judah. Anybody like to hazard a guess when King Hezekiah ruled as opposed to Solomon? 250 years. So... The book of Proverbs is still being written or added to 250 years after Solomon has died by advisors of King Hezekiah who thought they'd add a few more of his Proverbs because they sounded really good. Hey, works for me. Um, Proverbs 31.1 The sayings of King Lemuel contain this message which his mother taught him. Who's King Lemuel? And who's his mother? (laughs) And where did all this come from? Now... Who knows that we have all the kings of Israel and and Judah mentioned in the Bible and King Lemuel isn't one of them. So we can actually probably assume reasonably accurately that he's a pagan king of some sort. That they actually decided that his sayings were worthwhile of putting in the Bible. And so there's there's all these sources. So the, the sources of some of the Old Testament are still a mystery to us. Um, and it didn't all come from the nation of Israel. So they weren't quite as insular and closed off as, as we think. And so there's not a lot we... And they're about the only things where, in the Old Testament where we've got indications of who wrote it. We are fairly sure, for instance, that Isaiah had a whole school of scribes going around after him writing stuff down. So Isaiah probably didn't write much of it himself. And so there was, there was a whole tradition of these things. And, and most people don't actually put their names on what they wrote because they felt, and probably rightly so, that the content matter was more important than them. They weren't interested in making a name for themselves, so they didn't put their names in. So where do we get these documents? I mean, the Bible has these internal clues, but how do we come to have the documents that these authors, known or unknown, actually wrote? Now, here's where it gets complicated. For a start, there are none of the original documents in existence today. But there are three main sources of the material from the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible as it's more correctly called in this context. And I want to look at the uh, three main ones, starting with the most recent and then going back to the original. So we've got a timeline here, and we can see that there's a group of people, and that goes from 1400 BC all the way to 1400 AD. So the most recent ones are done by these guys called the Masoretes. These guys actually still exist today. So uh, they were a a Jewish uh, revolutionary sect that that actually um, 
revolted when Egypt had control of Israel and became a separate community. Um, actually, no, that's, that's a different mob, sorry. These guys, uh, much later, 500 to 1000 AD, I'm getting my uh, Maserites and my Septuagints mixed up. Um, and they were a group of people for whom the name anal retentive may have been invented. Um, these guys were absolutely amazing in their care and their, um, their concern for the biblical script. They, they collected uh, huge numbers of documents, uh, which collectively are known as the Masoretic Text. And uh, they collected over 6,000 documents of biblical material and put together uh, this Masoretic Text, the, the pinnacle of which is known as the Leningrad Codex. Uh, which I've got a, a no, one before that. The pretty looking one. Have I missed it out? Is it not, uh, is it not downloaded? Yep, that's the one. So as you can see, that, it's extremely pretty. I mean, these guys embellished and uh, illustrated and illuminated this thing. And uh, although I can't read Hebrew, that looks pretty clear. So these guys did an amazing job. They counted letters and words and they did things like, you, you, there's no, not an example there, but you know, in the very centre of the book of Deuteronomy, one letter is bigger than the others, so that, that you know that that's the middle letter in the whole book of Deuteronomy. I mean, these guys were introverts, let me tell you. Um, and just to give you an idea of the, the time scales we're looking at here, if, if I say the word Egypt to you, name me a feature of Egypt that comes to mind straight away. Pyramids and the Sphinx. Okay, good idea. Okay, if I mention people of Egypt, who comes to mind? Cleopatra. Okay, good example. And so we think of Cleopatra and the pyramids as part of Egypt's past. But do you know that we are closer in time to Cleopatra than she is to the building of the pyramids? The distance, the time gap between her ruling, she ruled in about 30 BC, to the building of the pyramids is actually longer than the time after. Now, because we think of Egyptian history as just long ago, and all bundled up into one, but it stretches out over a huge timeline. So we're looking at people who collected uh, documents and fragments of scrolls from over a huge range of history. And so they've given us this this book and our Old Testament in, in the Bible you read today is most likely the Masoretic text taken from these guys here. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, hang on, there's at least a 700-year gap between this and the original Hebrew Bible authors. Don't we have something that's a bit closer to the source? You'd feel a bit more comfortable if you found some documents that were BC, perhaps. And we do have one, and that's the next one, which is coming up. This is something known as the Septuagint, which means 70. Don't ask me why, because I don't know. Um, it's probably easy enough to find out, but I didn't think it was important. So this was written between 200 and 100 BC. And so you're thinking, wow, right, of course, we're in the real deal here. Why aren't we using this? Well, I don't know whether you can notice the difference in the text, but the Septuagint is in Greek which means that it's been translated from the original Hebrew documents into Greek. You might think, well, why on earth did they do that? 
Well, it was because of this guy called Alexander the Great, who happened to conquer the whole known world around 300 BC. And he decided that in his wisdom that everybody was going to speak Greek, including Jewish communities around the Middle East. And so some bright spark thought, well, okay, if we're all speaking Greek, it might be a good idea if we had a Greek Bible. And we are lucky in, in, a, in a sense that this Septuagint was actually um, preserved in several forms very well. It might look a bit spotty there, but the, the translation of the Septuagint is also extremely good. Now, of course, as I say, the only problem is that it's in Greek. And therefore, there are variations between the Greek and the Aramaic, because you, you translate anything into another language, and you've, you've, you've changed something. You don't necessarily know what the original document was saying. You only know what the person interpreted that to say in Greek. And the Greeks are funny in that apparently, and I don't quite know how this works, you don't have to put the words in the same order in a Greek sentence to have it mean the same thing. You can swap the words around a bit. And we can do that a bit in English. You know, I, I, I want to leave um, the city. I, the city, want to leave. Sort of means the same thing, but it's just a bit clumsy. And so the, the problem was that it, it's, um, they didn't have the original documents that it was translated from. So then, and, and of course, the differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text are, in some cases, huge. There are lots and lots of differences. 99% of them um, are very small and make no difference to the text, but some of them do. Um, and the third major, and there are, these aren't the only three, can I have the timeline back up, please? Um, these aren't the only three um, sources. Uh, the, the third, of course, is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Who's heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, they were discovered in, in around about 1954, I believe. And uh, the first, the Western world heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls was a, a, uh, an advert in a newspaper, uh, which I have here, uh, in, the, new, in the, uh, the New York Times, I think it was. Uh, the four Dead Sea Scrolls, biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 BC are for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution by an individual or group. So they appeared on the black market. And luckily, uh, the site was discovered by uh, academics and secured, and the analysis of the scrolls found there has actually continued in a, until 2001. Uh, because a lot of them, if we get the next picture, this is an example of uh, some good pieces of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, a lot of them were pieces around about the size of a five cent piece. And people in the 1950s and 60s, of course, put them together without the aid of computers. So it took a long time. Um, you'd have to get a piece, look at the phrase, look up your concordance here. That phrase looks as though it's from Deuteronomy, so we'll put it in that pile there. And they managed to piece it all together. Come the 1990s and 2000s, of course, that was then changed. And we now have a totally digital um, copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, the interesting thing about that was that obviously some books were more popular than others. The most popular books were Deuteronomy. There were 30 copies of it found. Isaiah had 21 copies and Psalms 36 copies, while the book of Esther was not found at all. Um, that's not to say that it wasn't there, 
but a lot of the uh, clay pots that these scrolls were in were destroyed completely. So if, only, if there are only one or two copies, it's not um, a problem to say that you know, the book of Esther isn't part of the Old Testament. So how do these manuscripts compare? How much time have we got? Not much. Um, okay. There's, there's differences. Now, I'm, I'm only going to show you one uh, for lack of time. So if we look in the book of Jeremiah again, we've got this great long... I think it's divided into a, a couple. So this is Jeremiah 10 verse 3. The customs of the people are false. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of an artisan. People deck it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor is it in them to do good. So we're talking about what here? Idols. And so then we get to this. It says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? And then it goes on. And on. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from there. They're the work of the artisan and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is blue and purple. They're the product of skilled workers. So we're going back to the idols again. And the next line. It says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. As his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And then it goes on. Thus you will say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from the heavens. Now that whole passage is in the Masoretic text. It will be in your Old, uh, Old Testament in Jeremiah. And... We've taken that as the complete text, but if you look at the Septuagint, all those bits I marked in blue are absent. Now to further complicate things, if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them have the things in blue and some of them don't. <laughs> so there, it's, uh, it's never simple when it comes to this. And so you sort of think, well, this is one example and, and there are plenty of others, but this showcase is one of the most import, important facts about these variations in the biblical text. Where did the extra text come from? Because this is actually really important. Because if you think about it, we know that the Masoretes didn't add these bits because remember, they're, they're anal. Um, and so everything they did was really, really... Um, above board. But the thing is that before the Masoretes, there's a, a whole period between 200 BC and 500 AD where due to war um, and um, revolution and um, persecution, a lot of um, texts were burnt or thrown away or destroyed. And so the Masoretes have basically only got a, a particular portion of what was available in that time period. They've um, they've preserved. And so if we look back at the Septuagint, we get a, a, a look into what may have been other um, portions. And we know for the fact that um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, some have and some haven't, that changes were being made to the Old Testament text, even in that 200 year gap between the, the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you sort of think, well, who's, who's playing hard and loose and fast with the, the Bible text here? What do these people think they're doing? And the funny thing is that these people were actually trying to be helpful. 
And so what this is, it's an, actually an ancient form of cross-referencing because the, the parts in blue, the extra bits, are not actually out of some other document. The blue bits are out of actually, actually out of the book of Psalms. And the, what we think has happened is that somebody's been studying the two scrolls together and, and seen parallels between the two. And they've either added them as a margin note saying, oh, by the way, this ties up with uh, this thing in Psalms. And as they've been transcribed, somebody thought, well, that margin note looks really good. Let's just put it in the main text because it actually adds to our understanding of the book of Jeremiah. So you will find that the things that have been inserted into the Bible actually still come from the Bible. But they're a, a way of the, the scribes used to try and increase our understanding of what the Bible was actually trying to tell us. And in fact, uh, and I, I don't have a copy here, but if you look at the Masoretic text, there is of, often more um, notes in the margin than there, are writing, there is writing on the page. Because they attempted to explain what was going on for future versions, future versions, future, what's the word? Generations of scribes when they came to replace the current scrolls. Um, because the reason, I, I don't know whether you've thought of this, the reason the scrolls were replaced is because they, they wore out. These were on animal skins and on papyrus, which certainly wasn't reflex number one. Um, and so they, they uh, wore out quite, uh, quite frequently. So what can we summarize from this? Um, so we know that the scribes carefully studied all parts of the Bible and the fact that they've added bits in doesn't actually change the message of the Bible. It actually doesn't change the meaning or any of the doctrine in the Bible. It actually adds to our understanding and we have enough of the Bible. In fact, when people talk about, you know, have, have we got a, you know, enough fragments to actually work out what was in the Bible, we actually probably have about 104% of the Bible, of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible. And so we probably need to cull a bit to actually get it down to 100%. There, as I said, there are, there are thousands and thousands of documents uh, which actually give us knowledge about the Bible. Uh, the next, I mean, people who are, are well-known in history, Alexander the Great, Plato, people like that, they often have 50 copies of documents for people like that that they consider that to be a really good find. Uh, but they are streets behind the Bible, which, as I said, has thousands and thousands of copies for us to, to, to actually look at. So what we discover is that although there are textual variations between different manuscript sources, nearly all of the editions are from somewhere else in the Bible. And so just to finish off, I realise I've gone a bit over time here. There's no evidence of there being earlier simple stories that have been embellished through time to change the story of the Bible as they've been copied. So the whole idea of, of myths and legends being turned into biblical fact is incorrect. There is also no evidence of any people trying to change the message of the Hebrew Bible, either through omission or addition. We have everything we need to recover the biblical text. Nothing is missing, even though sometimes it's pretty hard to decipher. And both Judaism and Christianity embrace the idea that God can use human processes to give and preserve his revelation. And nothing, I think, that we can discover in history uh, does anything to change that. And so I think we can actually have full confidence in the fact that, that what we read in the Bible, that what we see in the, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, is what God wanted to convey to his people. 
It's an interesting fact that, have you ever looked at some of the quotes of the Old Testament in the New Testament and then looked at the Old Testament and discovered they're not the same? Anybody ever done that? Jesus is quoted from, Jer from Joel, for instance, and you go back and look in Joel and you think, I thought these people were supposed to memorise their Bible. And it doesn't, it's not the same. You know why? Jesus' Bible was the Septuagint. The Masoretic text hadn't been compiled in Jesus' time. And so our Old Testament is the Masoretic text and Jesus' Old Testament or his Bible was the Septuagint because he, he had the Greek translation of the ancient Aramaic text because that was what was circulated in the early Christian church. And so if it was good enough for Jesus, I think it's good enough for us. Um, but that, that's, there are lots of other, if you've got questions, I'll be happy to uh, try and answer them. There's a lot more detail that we could go into with that. Um, but uh, it's, it's fascinating. Next week, we're going to look at the New Testament, which is fascinating in a different way. The Old Testament, Testament was written over a 1,000, 1,500-year period. The New Testament was written within 50 years. Bang. But then something different happened to the New Testament that didn't happen to the Old Testament, and we'll be talking about that next week. Uh, so can I, can I get you all to stand? I realise I've eaten into your morning and I've eaten it into an, uh, on a morning where the uh, fuse for the air conditioner has blown so that you're all probably a bit hot and sweaty. Uh, we promise to have that fixed by next week because I think it's going to be 40 uh, next Sunday. Um, so we'll definitely need it. But I've gone through a lot of sort of facts and, and uh, ideas that don't seem to be terribly spiritual this morning. There's a lot of history, a lot of um, academic findings and things which we often, I think, as Pentecostal Christians, find it hard to relate to in terms of our walk with God. And we're Holy Spirit people. You know, the Bible, um, what the Bible says is a good backup, but we like to experience uh, God firsthand. And while there's nothing wrong with that, I think that to, to be well-rounded as Christians, we actually need to know uh, what God says in his word, why it's said, and, and answer the questions that sceptical people will have. And it's okay to be sceptical, but it's also good to have an answer for sceptical people and to show people that we don't believe that the, the, the Bible is a magical book. Um, it's actually a miraculous book. I mean, especially the Old Testament, how can 33 authors over 1,300 years actually put together a coherent story in the first place. And we know they didn't collude with each other because most of them were dead by the time the next person started. Um, that in itself is a miracle. Um, but the fact that, as I said earlier, if we look at the Bible, we can see that the message that God wants us to actually get from the Bible, who is Jesus? What is he about? What is he doing on this earth? And what is our purpose in connecting with him? is clear throughout the whole Bible. So can I ask you just to close your eyes for a moment. If you're here this morning and you're perhaps struggling with the idea that God exists or, or that we, you should follow God or you don't know who God is, but you want to find out more, you're intrigued by the history of the Bible, but you're also intrigued by the fact that God is someone we can know as a person, not just as a description in the pages of a book or a manuscript. I want to 
offer you an opportunity to take your questions and your queries a step further. God invites us to join Him on a journey of faith in our lives. And faith isn't always just looking at the Bible and just believing it's true. It's actually going on a journey and understanding that the authority of the Bible is actually based in a person, not on a page. And that person is Jesus Christ. And He invites us to make a decision to say, yes, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, and trust, put my faith and trust in you. Or I'll just wait and see what happens. And his urge to all of us, I believe, is to say, don't wait, don't see, but try and enjoy. So if you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never said, okay, I'm going to take a step of faith and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to turn my life around, change my decisions, my lifestyle from what it was to one that reflects me following Jesus. I'd love to help you start on that journey this morning. You may have already started, but you've turned around again and perhaps gone the wrong way and you want to come back. Jesus loves it when we do that as well. And all it takes to begin that journey is a declaration that we declare before people and before God that we're willing to take Him at His word and start on that journey. And so I want to invite you to do that this morning. We're going to do that all together. I'm going to pray a prayer and ask you all to repeat it after me. And then at the end of the service, if you've said that for the first time or that you're coming back to a relationship with Jesus, I'd love to speak to you down here at the front after the service. So repeat after me. Dear Lord, today I change my life around. I follow you and no one else. I reject the devil and all his teachings. I now consider myself a child of God. Jesus, you are my Lord and my Saviour. Thank you for saving me. Amen.